you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Listen to this. It's completely free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Welcome in to Season 1 of Disturbed. All stories and cases you hear are real, either narrated by myself or as told by the person involved. I hope you enjoy this season of Disturbed. And now, on with the show. Warning, this episode contains descriptions of violent attacks. Listener discretion is advised. Back in 1978, Kathy Kleiner was attending Florida State University as a pledge to the Chi Omega sorority house. On a Saturday in the middle of January, she had attended a wedding at Wesley Chapel. After, Kathy decided to head back to the sorority house and do some studying instead of going out with her friends. She called it a night around 11.30 p.m. But in the early morning hours, Kathy's life would dramatically change after a man broke into the sorority house and brutally attacked several of the sorority members of Chi Omega, including Kathy. So just who was the attacker that made his way into the sorority house? Well, you may have heard of him. His name was Theodore Robert Bundy. Ted Bundy. In this episode, we're going to hear from Kathy Kleiner herself about the day she was attacked, the trial of Ted Bundy, and the aftermath. My name is Kathy Kleiner. I was attacked by Ted Bundy in 1978. I was born in Miami. I lived in a small little house with my mama and my dad and two siblings. I remember it was around, I was around five. And um, every evening, my daddy would come home and sit next to me in his big chair and we played Chinese checkers. Kathy had some fond memories of her dad. And that is such a, a vivid memory for me, um, him coming home every night. One evening, I had the board all set up to play, and Daddy Daddy didn't come home. And uh, Mama said, he's not coming home tonight. A couple of days, I kept doing this, and then she sat down because I get upset that he never came home. And she told me that he had passed away and that he was in heaven and that, um, you know, he won't be coming home. So that was my new normal, I guess, getting used to no daddy and my parent, I mean, my mom and sister and brother were very active in um, pursuing, you know, just life moving on. Um, so I lost my daddy and it was very powerful for me. When my mom remarried, it was about four years later. My stepfather adopted me. His name was Harry, and he was wonderful. He was a great stepfather. So again, here I am, a new normal, and life is great. But not everything would be so great. Growing up, Kathy faced some pretty big-time struggles. When I was 13, I was in sixth grade, I became ill. I always had a low-growth fever, and I had no energy and Sixth grade, I just hung out with the teacher and watched everyone play. My mama took me to the uh, to my doctor. He said that he wasn't sure what I had, but I should go down to see a specialist in Miami. And he wanted me to go right away. So um, the next day, mama took me down to Miami to see a specialist. 
I was not, they, they, they still didn't know what I had. It was, um, they were trying to figure it out. At that time, I actually had systemic lupus. I was 13 and it was not common to have it at 13 and lupus was not a well-known disease. They knew it was uh, something that usually women get older in life. I was in the hospital for three months in Miami. They were trying anything to try to, to make me better. They told my parents that um, I probably would only leave, live the year. The uh, lupus had settled in, into my kidneys and they were breaking down. Of course, I didn't know this. I was just living in the hospital and that was life. Uh, when I was released from the hospital to go home, a Cuban doctor approached my parents and said that she had an experimental chemo that she could try for me. And at that point, mama's going, you know, just save my baby, anything. So I was given the uh, chemo experimental. I lost all my hair. I was very sick and stayed home my seventh grade of, high, of school. I had a homebound teacher and I just totally could not go out at all. I would look out the window and see my friends playing and that, you know, that made me sad, but I couldn't go out and mom and daddy were working. And I, I remember I would dial zero and talk to the operator because I was so lonely and so bored. You know, sometimes they would talk to me and other times they wouldn't. But, um, you know, I just asked questions and what are you doing? It was nice to have someone to talk to. And I did that several times. Kathy was a fighter, and she was getting tired of being cooped up inside all the time. Toward the end of my seventh grade, it was getting to be spring, and I asked Mama if I could please get out of the house and go to church. She agreed, and I got my pretty dress on and had my hair wrapped up in a scarf, and it was so nice to get out. And we went to church, and then we went and had ice cream. And not a week and a half later, I came down with shingles. So now I'm, you know, I have I have that on my neck and my face and still um, worn out from chemo and everything. That is a lot to deal with as a child. But like I said, Kathy is a fighter. But I did get better. And in my eighth grade, I went to school in the fall. I wasn't able to do a lot of strenuous things. I couldn't do PE because of the uh, my lupus was um, not letting me have that much energy. So after I graduated from eighth grade, I went to high school. High school brought an exciting new outlet for Kathy. It was great. I joined theater. I um, no one knew I had been sick, and you know I was just you know enjoying high school. And it's so cool because when I was in theater, I could be and act like anyone I wanted to be. I wasn't that sick little kid that stayed home in seventh grade. So I love theater. It just opened up my um, the way I felt. And I made some great friends. And it was just a, a very good time. And theater really brought me out of, out of being sick and feeling um, Sorry for myself. Kathy graduated high school, and it was now time to choose a college. I chose FSU because it was as far away as I could get from Mama in Cuba, I mean, in Miami, and still stay in in-state tuition. Uh, Mama was very protective of me um, after the lupus and everything. She just, um, I'm allergic to the sun, and she used to run behind me with an umbrella over my head as, you know, I went out and did anything. And it was like, Mom. But she um, she had been through enough with me being sick, and she was uh, overprotective. So I went to FSU in the fall of 76, and I loved it. I, I was in a dormitory, and Mama hated that. It was a all-women's dorm, of course. So uh, we, we were living on the third floor, and we couldn't have any guys or anything in the dormitory up the stairs. And for panty raids, I, rem <laughs> I remember leaning over the stairwell and throwing our panties down. 
that's as close as I got to a panty raid. <laughs> Here, catch this. <laughs> so the girls up there were having fun, even though we couldn't um, have them come up and, and get us. So um, in the fall, I decided to rush, which um, is when um, the women, usually the freshmen of the university, get all dressed up and we go to the different sororities on campus. And we, we talk to them and they talk to us and it's kind of an interviewing process. When we left one house, we had like 15 minutes to go to the next sorority that we liked and we thought we wanted to join. And as we did that, the sorority we had just visited decided if they want us or not. So it was kind of, what do you think about Kathy? I don't know. And so, um, I did get to, um, get back to Chi Omega. And they chose me to be a pledge for them, which meant I got in the sorority. And I was so happy. Kathy had found a new group she could fit in with. Chi Omega was a beautiful house and lots of women, and it was a great time. So along with that, I also had a small church group that I went to. It was not too far from the sorority, so I was able to walk down the street and uh, the church group was mainly a lot of the students and a couple of the younger couples that lived around there. So we played pool and ping pong and a nice, nice group of people. So here I am with Kyle Omega and my little church group, and I'm really, really happy. So I, gradu- I graduated from to December um, 76, December 77, came around, and we uh, – got out for summer semester. My mom and dad made arrangements for me to move into the Chi Omega house because they thought it was so much safer for me to live in the sorority house than in the, in the dormitory. So in the fall of 77, I moved into the house and it was great. We lived on the second floor. My roommate was Karen. And our room was was great. It was a nice big room. And we had um, curtains. I mean, we had a bank of windows in the back of the room. So it was just, it was a happy place now, you know, living with the girls. Kathy was in a good place, having a good time with new friends. And she was happy. I remember Margaret Bowman was, she was um, beautiful. She was studying to be an interior design major, and she was always so sweet. She was a senior, and she just was always so sweet, and she'd take the time to talk to me, and, you know, it was just, she was a, a pleasure to be around. Lisa Levy was, lived across the hall from us. She was great. She was very athletic. And I remember going into her room with the other sisters and doing our nails. And it was just, she was easy to get around. And um, I loved her. I loved her a lot. So my, my roommate and I decided to decorate our room. And we went on in Christmas of 1977. And mom and I bought a bedspread and decorated the room. And it was great. Then came a day that started off pretty normal. But by the early morning hours of this day, Kathy's life would change dramatically. On January 14th of 78, I went to a wedding on that Saturday. It was so cold out. And I remember wearing my corduroy jeans and my big sweater and it was cold and damp out. And the wedding was um, a couple from the little church, Wesley Chapel that I had joined. They were having a noon wedding and then outside reception afterwards. It was, it was beautiful. It was, it was just simple and they were happy and we were, it was a good time. After the reception outside, a group of us went back into the uh, church and we played pool and everyone decided, let's go out tonight. Let's go do something. And we all said, yes, let's do it. I wanted to go back to the sorority house which I walked down a couple blocks. And uh, when I went in, I remember um, everyone, it seemed like all the sorority sisters were getting dressed to go out and party or, or do something. And they all wanted me to join. And 
I said, you know, I'm just, I'm just going to stay home tonight. I'm just going to stay home and study. I remember I had a calculus test on Monday and I just wanted to get a head start on, on studying. So I went up into my bedroom. Karen was up there also and we sat on the beds and, and both of us did our homework. When you walked into our bedroom, we opened the door and on each side of the door, parallel to each other, we had a dresser and then next to the dresser was our desk. And then at the foot of the desk was the foot of our twin bed. And these lined up directly against the wall. The head of our beds faced the back wall, which were all the windows. So I remember we always window shades open because we hung plants on the curtain rods. So it was, um, the curtains were always open. So Karen and I are sitting and laying down on our, each of our twin beds studying. Um, I think it was about 1130 or 12 o'clock. We decided to go ahead and turn off the lights and go to sleep. Our, <clears throat> I remember going to bed and falling asleep. And sometime during the night, I didn't know what time it was, I heard our bedroom door slide open against the carpet. And it slung against the wall as it opened, which kind of woke me up enough to try to focus my eyes because I, I knew someone was in the room. I just couldn't focus too much. The next thing I heard between our our twin beds we had like a little foot locker a little trunk that was about four foot long and maybe three feet high whatever was in our room tripped over that trunk and made a lot of noise I'm waking up a lot a lot more now and I look and all I see is a silhouette or the outline of a person it was all dark I kind of was focusing and not knowing what was going on. It just didn't register. But this person stood next to me and raised his arm up, his right arm, and he brought it down on my face with such force that it shattered my jaw in three places. It cut my cheek wide open. So from the my lips to my ear, it was just wide open. I almost bit off my tongue. My teeth were loosened and I had my shoulder was shattered. I didn't know it then, but I was hit with a piece uh, of firewood, a log that um, this person had picked up when he walked into our back door of the house. I was laying there now and went unconscious. And my roommate, Karen, was stirring because she heard the noise. And as she's waking up, this person just kind of turned around to her bed and hit her in the face as well with the same log he hit me. I um, I was unconscious, and then I started to, to move around. And I remember trying to scream and yell. And all I was doing was making gurgling sounds because with my jaw broken, I just, I couldn't form words or make sounds. So I was awake and this person never left uh, victims alive. We didn't know this person was Ted Bundy. He was still just somebody that came into our room and he was going to hit me again. And I'm in bed in a little ball laying on my left side, waiting, waiting for the blow. And all of a sudden in our bedroom, the lights, the, the room lit up and it, it was pretty bright in there. Um, we faced the back parking lot. So our windows opened up to the parking lot. And just at that time, a car pulled into the parking lot and the light shone up into our bedroom. That light spooked whoever was in there with us. He thought he was seen or I saw him and he kind of was jerky and he ran out, ran out of our bedroom door. 
and then the lights went dark again. And I'm still cringed in my little ball, knowing he was going to come back, knowing he was going to come back and hit me again. He didn't. As I passed out for a while, next thing I remember is a police officer standing next to me. And he was um, talking to me. And in, in my in my confusion, I saw a police officer. And I felt a bit of safety that he wasn't going to let anyone come back and hit me. So as much as I was dealing with, I had a piece of comfort because the police officer. I was um, tended to by the paramedics. I was carried down the front stairs. When you opened the sorority front doors or double doors, right there in front of you was a beautiful wooden staircase. So I was being carried down on a stretcher down the stairs. And we got to the front door and they were carrying me out and it was so cold. I remember it was freezing and I'm laying there. And as I'm laying there looking up to the stars, I see these heads looking down at me and I, I couldn't comprehend or know what it was, but it, it was just such an odd feeling um, laying there and seeing heads looking down at me. <clears throat> As they carried me out, the ambulance light were going and the police cars lights were spinning and the fire truck was spinning <clears throat> and the walkie talkies from everyone was squawking and making noise. And in my mind, I was in a carnival. I went to somewhere that felt safe. It, it, it just, it's weird, but I laid there and I was in a carnival and I wasn't scared like I was before. I was put into the ambulance and taken to the hospital. And as I'm there and all the, everything that's going on, just the confusion and people walking around and putting IVs. And and I remember the police officer was still with me. And again, it was just everything so confusing, but I knew this person wasn't going to come back and hit me again. As I'm laying on the gurney looking up, I saw the face of a beautiful nurse who happened to be the, the bride at the wedding I had gone to the day before. And she was a nursing student working the ER that night. She took care of me and smiled at me. And it was comforting to know that she was there. Just things like that. I remember snippets, but not of being scared, but of being comforted. Kathy had some pretty extensive injuries and her road to recovery was pretty lengthy. I was um, taken to surgery and put into my room and there was a police officer sitting out at the front door because they didn't know who attacked us. They didn't know anything. And I remember the detectives asking me over and over, you know, what happened? Who'd you see? And my jaw was wired shut. My face was bandaged. And I just, you know, I couldn't tell them anything because I didn't see anything. I was in the hospital for about a week. And it was time for us to go home. My mom, my sister, everyone was in the room with me. It was time to fly home back to Miami. In the car, I was, it was a, it was an unmarked car. It was just a black car. They took me back to the sorority house. And they wanted me to look around and see if I could see anything was missing off my dresser or my desk because if this person had taken anything and they found him, it would be um, knowing that he was actually the one that attacked us. So those stairs that I had to walk up were not as beautiful and wooden as they were before. It seemed like they were just a mountain I had to climb. And I went so slow that uh, um, someone was on each side holding my elbows, helping me walk up the stairs. When I got to the top of the stairs, I looked, and Margaret's room had yellow tape, crime scene tape. I didn't know at the time, but she had also been attacked that night. Her room and my room 
butt up against each other. And this person attacked her with the firewood and did things to her and then put the sheets up next to her neck like she was sleeping. And he left her room. And I looked on the other side as I'm walking to my room and there's yellow crime scene tape. And that was Lisa, Lisa Levy's room. And I remember doing my nails in there. And that's the kind of thing I was thinking. I didn't know that she also had been attacked and um, beaten and other things that were terrible that she he did to her. And she had passed. Margaret Bowman and Lisa Levy, two other girls in the sorority at the time, had also been attacked and killed that night. So um, I'm, I'm not knowing any of this. I'm just walking. The next door was my room, and it was covered in crime scene tape. The yellow tape was everywhere, and they moved it so I could walk in my room. And there was fingerprint dust everywhere on my dresser and on my desk. And I was just so confused. I, I couldn't tell if anything was missing. Um, it, I just couldn't tell. So my eyes looked down the wall and I saw my twin bed and my beautiful bedspread that mama and I went out and picked in December of the end of 77. I remember looking at my bedspread and thinking, oh, it's, it's ruined. Uh, it's again, this is things that just I thought about that were not, didn't make any sense at the time, but I looked at it and it was covered with my blood that had now turned brown. And I stood there looking at it. And I think it was a real good idea for me to do this. I had reality in my head. I actually saw where this happened to me and what happened to me. And I think over the years, it helped me. So I didn't have to think that it really happened and what happened. It was, it shocked me into reality. And that's, that's an image I'll never forget. But I think it was good for me. I was taken back down the stairs and we flew home to Miami. Kathy told me about the extent of her injuries. My jaw was broken um, at both joints and my chin was shattered and um, they tried to um, suture my cheek as best they could to close it and my tongue was so bit almost bitten off and they can't suture your tongue it just has to heal in time. My jaw was wired shut and I was bandaged with the um the sutures and everything on my cheek so it was it was a um it, it was a lot of trauma I went through physical trauma at that point and mental the recovery process was not so easy my um my parents in Miami took me down to see a oral surgeon just to check out how I was doing and in Tallahassee, they actually wired my mouth, my teeth, so that they would not be equal. They were, the teeth would have been off. So um, he broke my jaw again. This is after three weeks of healing. He had to break my jaw again. And he actually put pins in my joints. Um, and he had to get wire and wrap it around what my chin bone because it was so badly shattered there wasn't it wasn't gonna heal like that. So um so here I am, my jaw broken after three weeks and I had to stay like that for nine weeks more. Um and in Miami my parents tried to um not let me see T V and read too much and they finally told me about Margaret and Lisa and um that was hard. That was really hard to take. Um, but I was asking, what about my friends and other sororities? I, I didn't really comprehend. It was just Kayo that, um, he went into. So, um, I'm pretty disoriented and, and that was a hard 
a hard couple weeks to go through. My family was very supportive and the only way I could eat or get nourishment was through a straw. And when he hit me, he really uh, moved my my teeth around. So I was able to um, get some some liquid or, or food in there. I remember my um, sister, I would eat a lot of uh, cream of wheat. And she would put garlic in the cream of wheat and give me a different taste. And one time she put baked beans in there. And I'm like, no, <laughs> and don't do that. Don't do that one again. It was disgusting. She was just trying to get me different textures and tastes, but um, don't put baked beans and in, in, uh, cream of wheat. Just is <laughs> not a good thing. <laughs> Kathy's roommate, Karen, was also attacked. Yes, she uh, her face was also shattered. She had her her um, jawbone was broken. She lived in Tallahassee. So um, her recuperation was done right there. And, um, you know, with with the sorority sisters and everyone giving her, you know, support and everything. So that's how she recuperated. Um, I didn't talk to her. I was in my own world of of hurt. And um, so at that point, we hadn't, you know, we didn't talk to each other. So um, so she she did uh, recover and, um, of course, had her mouth wired shut and um, went through the trauma of, of recuperating. When my mouth was opened up, my jaw bone was, I mean, it was so stiff and I had to do exercises to open it and close it. And steak does really good on <laughs> expanding and shutting your jaw, really. It was a lot easier doing that than just exercises. Um, so after my mouth was opened up, I it wasn't really a fear, but I was uncomfortable to be around men that I didn't know. And it's not like I felt everyone was going to attack me. It was just an uneasy uneasy uh, feeling. So I went to work at a lumber yard in Miami and I worked behind the counter because I wanted to see as many men as I could and, and just know that not everyone was going to hurt me. So um, I worked at the register and I think there was one time somebody freaked me out a little bit and I slid under the cash register and someone else took the sale. But um, I, I became, I became stronger in doing that. And I felt like, okay, you know, I, I'm over this feeling of, um, everyone going to attack me. And, um, so I stayed there only about a month and, um, decided it was time for me to, um, to leave that and to move on with my life. I think it was somehow the way I saw my bed in, in the room. And it was such a shock to see my bed that way. And like I said, it was, it was good for me to, uh, for me to see it and get a, a solid feeling of this is what happened. And I think that's kind of in my mind when I decided that I need to do something to, to overcome this feeling of, um, of, of sadness and, and just to, to be scared. So like I said, I worked there about a month and then, um, then I left. Kathy was about to have another major life event. It was six months after the attack that I got married. And my parents and his parents thought it was a good idea for me to get married and protect me and not let anything happen to me. And, and mama was like, that's a great idea. You know, let's get her safe and, and married. So I actually married a, a guy that I met at the little church. So I knew him maybe, maybe a year, um, maybe a year. So we got married and it was interesting. <laughs> it was an interesting, um, an interest. And I wasn't strong and I, I wasn't, I did, I knew it wasn't right because I didn't love him. And, but I went along with everything. I was very, um, docile and let them plan the wedding and everything. And I think I just didn't want to upset people. And, um, so I just 
went along with it. And, um, so it was such a happy time for everybody. Um, so I, I was married. It was time for some happy news in Kathy's life. I did get pregnant and I had a beautiful baby boy. When you have lupus, they'll, they say that you shouldn't have children because it'll not activate, but it'll, um, activate, I guess, um, the lupus inside of you and it could have it flared up, flare up. But I did have my little Michael and, um, it was great. He was a, Good boy. Kathy had some lingering fears of being in a hospital. I could not walk into a hospital. When so, when I went with people to go see a baby or visit someone, I would have to sit outside. I remember on the concrete um, benches and wait for someone to come back out. And I had been in a hospital for three months I lived in the hospital, and I could not walk into one with the memories of that. And also, after being attacked and being in the hospital for so long, it just, I just couldn't, I just couldn't walk into the hospital. Um, about a week after that, I went to Human Resources and got a job in the hospital. And I ended up working there 18 years, and it was the best job I ever had. And once again, it's just I couldn't walk through that front door. I mean, literally could not walk through the door. And afterwards, I was fine, and, you know, it was a great place to work. Kathy's marriage at the time had ended, and she admits that she was married for the wrong reasons. My marriage ended in divorce. And I think whomever I had married at that point, it didn't matter, you know, because it wasn't for the right reasons. And it just, I don't think it would have survived any anything at that point. My son was two years old when I got divorced. Um, I was a single mom for about five years. And actually, he and I grew up together. It was, it was, it was cool, you know, just him and I. And, and in South Florida, it was always something to do. So I was a single mom for about five years. Then I met my husband now, who was actually in theater in high school. So we knew each other very well after four years in high school. We never dated at that point. But um, I saw someone gave me his phone number. I called it one day and he came for lunch and basically never left. <laughs> so this was this was about. Um, probably about five years after I was divorced and um, he had been divorced. So it was a good time in our lives. Kathy had been able to put the past behind her and move on with her life. It was, it was something that I could have hidden in a box and crawled away, but I, I didn't want to do that. I mean, I, there's always going to be obstacles in your way and life just, put something there it's always going to be something and I used to run and, and jump that obstacle because I always wanted to see what was on the other side um, everything I had been through it had to be better <laughs> had to be a better <laughs> so um, so I was uh, married to Scott for a couple years and we decided that we wanted to have a baby so I went and met my gynecologist doctor and he found a lump in my breast. I um, didn't go to the hospital right away. I didn't even Scott right away because I wanted to deal with it and figured it was nothing. And so it grew in a month. It grew from the size of a pinky nail to about a walnut. And we went in, had the biopsy, and it was, I was stage two breast cancer. I had to have a radical mastectomy, reconstruction, and I had to have chemo again. And I lost all my hair. And that that just that just wasn't right <laughs> to have to do that again. It just when they said the word chemo when I was in the hospital, I just I didn't think I could do it, you know, mentally. And then I was going through my sessions at the clinic and one day Scott picked me up. And it was my birthday. I was working at a hospital. And he had a, a wrist corsage for me. 
And because um, it was my birthday and I was going to go to the clinic and have chemo. When I got there, the chair that I sat in had balloons and flowers. And, you know, he's so wonderful. He just made that chemo just a little bit easier to get through. I was to have nine nine um, sessions of chemo. And I said, no, I have one. I have one. And Scott's going, no, honey. And I said, I have one to get through. And then I have one more. And after, you know, because the thing, if I had nine months of chemo, I mean, that, that would have really bummed me out. You know, it would have been hard for my head to wrap it. So I had one chemo and then the next one. And, um, so, you know, we made it through that. And my hair, of course, started growing back. And um, it was about a year later that Scott, I was 32 at the time with the breast cancer. I had no family history of it. So um, after I recuperated as best I could from um, having the breast cancer, we decided that we wanted to have our baby. So I got pregnant pretty much right away. And two months into the pregnancy, I had a miscarriage. And I know, I know there's so many women who go through a miscarriage and everyone's gonna, everyone handles it different, differently. Um, and in my mind, I figured I, I can go through every, anything myself. I can, I can put myself and, and make it okay and I can get away. But I couldn't help the baby. I, I couldn't help the baby. I couldn't take, make it better. So um, that miscarriage was very hard. And about nine months later, we uh, we decided to try again, and I got pregnant. And in my third trimester, I had another miscarriage. And again, just the feeling of guilt that I couldn't save the baby. I couldn't do anything and and make it better. So after that miscarriage, um, I decided I, I can't go through this again. And um, we ended up, we bought a sailboat, and we called her Sally. And that was now my new norm was to enjoy life and, and go sailing. And, you know, that was my new thing now. And um, we didn't really call it Sally, but that was our new date. And um, that that was a good time then. That was a good time in my life. You know, everybody has a strength that they they have, and it's deep inside of them. And you have to look really deep, and when you find it, pull it up, and it's it's their strength, and they can use it for anything. It can help them deal with any anything that faces them. And once they have it, no one can take it away from them, and that's theirs to use. And I used mine so much that it helped me face things because I was strong enough. I knew I could do it. Kathy had moved on with her life after the attacks on the sorority house. But in the immediate aftermath of the attacks, the community was pretty scared. Nobody had been arrested for the attacks, and no one was really sure who had done it. I lived in um, South Miami. So I didn't have the um, the love or, you know, being surrounded by the sisters or anything since I was so far away. And life continues and they moved on and, you know, it, it, that was their life. But I was stuck in my life back in Miami. And I felt like I needed, I needed to be told it was my fault. And, you know, I was just whisper away and taken away from everyone and it was it was just hard it was a hard feeling and um I don't blame them because you know my mama said let her heal before y'all talk to her and everything and you know it was it was a long time but um so I never really talked to any of them everybody moved on and you know before I knew it I got married and I send them a wedding invitation and you know life just goes on on February 15th, about one month later, Ted Bundy was arrested and he became the prime suspect in the FSU attacks. 
although no one officially knew it yet, he had killed dozens of young women in Washington, Utah, and Colorado, and he'd already been arrested on suspicion of kidnapping and one count of murder. He had escaped jail twice, once by jumping out of a courthouse window in Aspen, and another time by sneaking out of an overhead crawlspace in Glenwood Springs, Colorado, after which he ran all the way to Florida, where he rented a room near the Chi Omega sorority house and waited to strike. There was going to be a trial, and before Kathy could move on with her life, she had to testify against Ted Bundy. That was odd. That was... I remember the morning that I was to testify. I remember getting up and Mama says, here's, you know, here's to eat. I said, no, I can't eat. I just can't eat. So it's time to get dressed. And I found my brightest red dress I could find in the closet and put that on because I I wanted to be in control. I wanted to wear this dress um, and just feel, feel, feel bold and bold in it. Just kind of, you know, feel, feel strength that I got from it. So uh, we went to the courthouse in Miami where the trial was. I was um, put into a conference room with several of the um, other witnesses. And I saw Karen, my roommate, and several other sorority girls who um, had something to say and, and to uh, be able to testify. When it was my turn to go in and testify, I went, they took me into a little smaller room that was actually right behind where the um, judge sits. There's a paneling usually, and then right behind that's a little room. So I was um, taken there, and um, my mom and dad, and I had to wait until it was my turn. So they opened the door, and I walked out of that little room, and I looked, and to the right of me was the jury box, and all the jury was sitting there and just I was just trying to scan the room you know just to see what what everything was so I looked at them and then a little a little further down was a big table and that was the prosecution's table and there were a lot of uh I'm sorry um lawyers and you know just working with them it was with them so maybe been five people at that table um, I looked around a little bit more, and there was where the people sat, and it was full up. I mean, it was it was standing room only. It was it was full. And then I looked a little further, and that was the defense table. And right there was Ted Bundy, and he was sitting there, cocky. He was really just kind of just looking at me. He had a smirk. Had his his uh, hand in his, his chin, I'm sorry, in his hand like he does, and just kind of looked at me. He did not uh, question me at all. Ted Bundy actually spent a good portion of the trial representing himself. However, he was not the one to question Kathy. So the prosecution went first, and they talked to me and, you know, asked me questions and a bit tell them about that night. And then it was the defense time to talk to me and the lawyer asked me just one or two questions and one of them was is this the man that was in your room that night and attacked you and I had to say I don't know because I never saw his face and I wanted so badly to help put him put him away I wanted to help convict him and I couldn't. And that's something that it doesn't haunt me, but I feel sad when I think about it that it, I just couldn't help put him away. So after they testified, um, they took me back into that little room and my parents were there. And I said, I think I'm going to throw up. It was just like the tense feeling I had out there. And I came back and was like, oh, my God, I'm going to throw up. <laughs> it was such an odd feeling. Um, so we left We left that, and we went to lunch that day. And um, that was about it for the trial. For Kathy, it was quite shocking to learn about Ted Bundy's history. 
it was surreal to hear it and and it it was like I was hearing it, but it wasn't me he attacked at that point. I was hearing all the other victims that he killed and the ones that that he took away from us, and they were so young. And that's where my mind was. I wasn't thinking of him. You know, I did think about it, but it was mainly for the other other women. I didn't feel like um, I was the only one. But, of course, you know, as I learned more about him, it, you know, became obvious that it was him. And, you know, there was no doubt. With the attack on the sorority house, Ted Bundy had completely switched up his method of operation. Normally, he was luring women to his car with some sort of a ruse like a broken arm or needing some sort of help. However, the attack on the sorority house was pretty different. He was walking into a largely occupied area with a lot of people and the risk was higher. Authorities weren't quite sure Bundy was the man initially. Actually, the uh, sheriff, King Casares, I've um, kept in touch with over the years. He was just so good to my mother and my father and me, just keeping us up to date. And um, so he he told us that he didn't even know who he was. He had different ID and everything on him. Um, so when it was he was investigating him, actually, the uh, the police over in Utah um, contacted Tallahassee and said, this doesn't really sound like his M.O., but it sounds like something he would do. Um, and it's Ted Bundy. So then they started looking into him and they saw his fingerprints and then they knew um, from from that that it was him. One of the most compelling pieces of evidence at the trial was a bite mark left on the body of Lisa Levy. Yes, he um, when he attacked Lisa Levy, he raped her and beat her and actually bit her and like an animal. I mean, when he had, when he came into our sorority house, he had not attacked anyone for a while. And I think he couldn't control himself. He just, he just, you know, was like an animal or something. When he came in, he was, he was just overwhelmed and, and wanting to terror and his evil and, you know, everything in him was like an animal coming out. So, um, he did bite Lisa and hard enough for them to make impressions of his teeth. And um, with his teeth being crooked and everything, it was very obvious that he was the one that bit Lisa. Police actually obtained a search warrant for Ted Bundy's mouth, and they took castings of his teeth. They compared the castings to the bite marks left on Lisa Levy. Four separate dental experts concluded without a doubt that Ted Bundy was the man who left the impressions on Lisa Levy. Something that wasn't known to Kathy at the time was that when Ted Bundy left the sorority house, he went right up the street to the duplex of Cheryl Thomas and savagely attacked her as well, leaving her in a coma, even though there was a high police presence in the vicinity. Yes. Yes, there was uh, Cheryl lived in a duplex with her roommates and she was a dancer and um, she had, was in the apartment, turned off the light to go to bed and Bundy went through her kitchen window. He attacked her and beat her and the roommates could hear the noise and didn't know what it was. And they had um, they had a, a thing that, you know, any time the phone rang, they had to answer it, you know, if one called the other. And so they called and she didn't answer the phone, though they knew, you know, that she was in there. So they called the police and um, he got away. He got away. So she was she was um, pretty beat up, um, broken jaw. Cheryl did survive the attack. Yeah, the police didn't even think there was uh, um, any way there was a relationship between the two. You know, it was just like it, it was too crazy. When the trial wrapped up and the jury was out for deliberations, Kathy wasn't getting too wrapped up in the whole process. In fact, she was trying to distance herself from it. Um, I tried not to fixate on it. Um, I didn't want to be drawn into that. And. 
I, I just didn't need to put myself there. Um, I followed it and everything, but I wasn't consumed with it. Um, so when he was convicted, it was, it was a release, a relief because I knew obviously he was going to hurt anyone again, but I also knew that he was getting, um, going to be executed and give some justice to the women that he killed. And not so much for, for them, but for their families, of course. I tried to contact a couple of, um, some of the girls' families and, um, you know, it had been, it had been years and years since the attack, but to them, it had just been yesterday with, with the pain and, and I, I just, I couldn't do that, you know, like, look at me, I'm fine. And, you know, although I was wanting to know their loved ones, I wanted to know about the girls and that wasn't, that wasn't good for them. So I didn't do it. Throughout the trial and even once he was sitting on death row, Ted Bundy was becoming famous, very famous. There were books and TV shows being written about him, about his charm and good looks and it was becoming less about the victims and more about Ted Bundy. Kathy was not on board with that. If you look at books, if you go to the bookstore or the library and you see any books on serial killers, he's always in there. And, you know, there's pages about him and there might be a paragraph about about his victims. And that has hurt me um, since you know, since I can remember. And it's just that, you know, he was, he was so manipulative that he, he showed himself as the perfect guy, you know, the student and, you know, he worked at a crisis center and, you know, but, but that's what he wanted us to see. That's what the press saw. That's what everyone saw. So that, you know, how could he be a serial killer when look how good he is, you know, he's this, you know, and so I think, People didn't think he could be bad because of that. And then, of course, he had the monster in him. And as that became more and more obvious, then um, I think his notoriety got better and bigger. One thing that helped in the healing process for Kathy was actually learning as much as she could about Ted Bundy. I read a lot of books and I've seen all his movies. And... um, you know, I have a couple that I've I've kept, and there's a couple, um, some of the authors that have written books. I'm a, a whole chapter in one of them, and um, a couple pages in one of the other um, sections of the book. And he wrote a lot about about his victims, and um, it was Kevin Sullivan. He's a, a great author and has um, studied um, Ted Bundy many many years. So. Um, he really did good. He done good. Yeah, he um, he portrayed the victims in a way that was was they needed to be done. And yeah, it was great. On January 24th, 1989, Ted Bundy was executed. It was an emotional day for Kathy. I remember my husband and I took Mike over to my mother's house because I didn't know how I was going to deal with it. And um, so at midnight, they kept calling us. The district attorney kicked us up to date as things were progressing and told us that he was not going to get another stay of execution, that this was actually going to be the day that it happens. So they kept us up to date into into the morning hours. And once he was... Once he was killed and um, we saw it on, on TV, you know, the uh, the people either on one side of death penalty or the other side, we had received the phone call before they knew it. And, um, you know, they said that he, he was killed. I remember sitting on the sofa with my husband, Scott, and I broke down and I cried and I cried. And all the women that he killed just ate me up inside. And it was kind of like I was crying for each of them. And I didn't even know if I was crying for myself at that point. It was 
it was a release, but it wasn't, it wasn't about me. And I remember crying and, and Scott holding me. And then I composed myself and I cleaned up and I said, I'm hungry. Let's go to breakfast. That was the day of his execution. It was something it had been building and building for so many years and then for it to actually happen and for me to release. I hadn't cried much or anything um, during all those years. I was living life. I didn't need to go back and think about it and cry, you know, for myself. And it was just release for the girls and their families. Kathy has shared her story publicly a few different times. And I asked her why it's important to her to share her story publicly. Yes, I have. And once I told my story the first time, it was CNN that actually contacted me in in 2018. And no one had, had approached me because... I guess the media and the everyone thinks that the victim wants to be left alone and don't doesn't want to talk about it. And a lot of them, you know, a lot of cases they do. It's like they don't even mention um, the person's name in the house or, you know, the, it's when they were attacked. So I choose not to live my life that way. And I wanted to share my story because once I told it once, I had such positive reactions and reinforcement that that I was strong and I could get through anything. And that's where I come up with everyone can do this. It's their strengths and they just they just have to have it and know they do. So each time, actually each time I talk today and tell my story, it heals me. It heals me a bit because I can tell it and it kind of sheds a like an onion. It just sheds a little, a little bit less and it just helps me. It helps me to heal. But I, I want women to know that they have power. And when they say, you know, how much I mean to them and I, you know, to tell you the truth, it's just me and my little, my little life. If you put your hands like you're going to drink water, you know, it's just, this is just my little life. And, I'm so humbled that people want to hear it. And I just feel, I feel so good when I feel, when I know that someone took my strength, took their strength, took everyone's strength and made it something better for themselves. And I think, I think that's why I do it. I feel like, I feel like I can help someone. There was Crime Con 19 last year. Um, it's a uh, like Comic Con or any, and I did a presentation, and I got so many hugs and loves from just the audience, and there were like 700 people in the audience, and that was only my second time to public speak, and I I walked up to the podium and went, oh no, <laughs> look at all those people, and they were standing against the wall and you know sitting on the floor. And I told my story, and it was just amazing. They showed steel shots or photographs, steel, um, and there were people crying. And I just feel so humbled that people hear my story and, and can react like that. In sharing her story publicly, Kathy has certainly helped many people who have been through similar situations with the ability to cope and find strength. There was uh, my first presentation that I did. It was uh, Society of Cold Case Detectives. And um, there was about 100 people in the room. It was a three-day event. And it was time to uh, tell my story. And um, these detectives were, like, really involved in what I was saying and how I mentioned the police officers and how much they meant to me. Um, I think they don't even think of it that way, you know, that it's the victims see them as something other than, you know, taking care of the crime scene and everything. And um, there was one woman that was there and talked to me after afterwards and said that she's going through a horrible divorce. And, you know, she they're just walking all over and she's so, you know, I wish I could be like you. I actually um, she twittered me not too long ago. 
and said that I inspired her so much that she took control and she said, I'm still being walked on, but I am more controlled than I've ever been. Hearing comments like those is what makes it all worth it for Kathy. I haven't heard anything negative. Um, all I get is good, good gree as they say here. Um, it's great. It's great. I've never heard anyone or no one's, you know, said a negative, um, you know, anything against me or, or against my story, which just makes me feel good because you always have criticism. People, people always want to criticize you about something. And, um, it's been, it's been a good feeling. It's, I'm glad I'm in the place I am right now because, um, I feel good about myself. My family's good and I can talk about it and it makes me feel better. When everything was said and done, Ted Bundy confessed to killing 30 women across seven states between 1974 and 1978. It's widely believed the actual number is closer to 100 or more. He is considered one of the most prolific serial killers in American history. A huge thank you to my guest Kathy Kleiner for sharing her story and being so active in trying to give strength and support to other victims of similar crimes. You can see more information about Kathy on our website at disturbedpodcast.com. If you enjoyed this episode, share the show with a friend. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook at Disturbed Podcast. All of our episodes are available online at disturbedpodcast.com. If you have a disturbing story to share, fill out the contact us form on our website. Stay tuned in just a second to hear about the Disturbed Fan Club. And as always, thanks for listening. Do you need even more Disturbed? I got you covered. Join the fan club. As a pro listener, you'll enjoy an ad-free listening experience, early access to new episodes, and a special podcast shout-out. And if that's not enough, bump it up to an elite listener and unlock a bonus episode every month as well as exclusive access to live streaming guest interviews. By joining the fan club, you'll be supporting the podcast as well as getting some awesome perks and benefits. It's a win-win. Join today at disturbedpodcast.com slash fan club.